1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I want to draw your attention to the following words that are found in verse 12. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. And then verse 16. Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Be ye followers of me, Paul says. Now there's no perfect church. There is no perfect Christian. However, there are degrees of godliness. There are degrees of holiness and likeness to Christ. There are some churches that are better than other churches. And there are some Christians that are better than other Christians. So we know that there are varying degrees. How do you measure it? And who's going to say who is the best Christian? There might be some among us who might say, well, if we're Calvinists, we'll be good Christians. And if we're free Presbyterians, we can't but be good Christians because you couldn't possibly be a good Christian if you weren't a free Presbyterian. Uh, I hope we don't think like that. That's not the measure of a Christian and what a good Christian is. There are variations, but it's not easy to measure. It's not easy to discern. What is the standard that you compare it to? You really need to see what a good Christian looks like. And that's today what I want to endeavor to do. To see a good Christian. One who has attained to Christ-likeness. And it is seen in the fire. In the fiery trial. Where it's evidence. So we want to see a good Christian. And then secondly we want to say. Why Christians should want to be good. To be Christ-like. And the amazing thing in this chapter is that Paul, he dares to put himself forth as a pattern. He dares to put himself forth as a good Christian. Because he says there, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Now the word follow here, it doesn't mean that, you know, whenever you were going home at night and you followed your dad home so that you wouldn't get lost. You went on the steps and you got home safe. It's not that kind of following. It's an imitating. It's a copying. Imitate me. It might literally be translated. Do as I do. Now that's a very bold statement, isn't it? I could never say to you, congregation, be you followers of me. I don't think any ministers today would dare say it. Maybe, maybe some feel that they could say it. But as for myself, I feel like I'll just leave them in the words of Paul. He said it. He said it truthfully. He said it by inspiration. And they're true words. And when he says, be followers of me, that implies two things. It implies, first of all, that Paul has a good measure of Christ-likeness. That he has nothing in his life or walk that he is in any way ashamed of. 
that he has a good measure of spirituality and of grace. That he isn't aware of any insincerity. That he can stand up to scrutiny in the workplace, in the home, in the church, in his life, whatever. Now this doesn't mean that he was sinless. It doesn't mean that he was perfect. But it does mean that he was blameless. And had a good likeness to Jesus Christ. He was a very godly and a very holy man. And Paul can say this because Paul is himself an imitator of Christ. Later on in chapter 11 he says, Be ye followers of me. There it is again. Be ye followers of me as I also am of Christ. I'm imitating Christ. I know that I'm imitating Christ. And you can imitate me as I imitate Christ. He has this likeness to Jesus then. But why would he say this? How does he dare to say it? Is he boasting and proud? Now we know that he is not. Because Paul is not a proud man. We know from his other writings he is a very humble soul. And that brings us to the second thing that's implied in this verse. That the Corinthian church was very unchristlike, And needed to be told this. And this is the way that he does it. He knows that this church is lacking. Lacking in grace. Lacking in the spirit of meekness. Lacking in love of Christ and of love for the saints. He knows that they're lacking. And he says this not to boast. But to reprove and rebuke them. And to give them a standard and a measure and an example. So that's why he does this. He, he's spurring them on you see. Not that he likes to say I'm a follower of Christ and you should follow me. That, that's not what it's all about. Listen to him there in verses 14 and 15. I write not these things to shame you. But as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. You see how he's speaking to them lovingly? He's saying, you have plenty of preachers and you have plenty of teachers, but you don't have a spiritual father like me. I begot you in the gospel. I love you like no other preachers love you, he says. I treat you as children. And when I say these things, I'm speaking as a father. A father sees faults, but he still loves. He doesn't love them any less because he sees faults. But nevertheless, he wants to change those faults. He wants to rebuke them as sons and to see them change and be more Christ-like. And that's why he, he does this. Because they're not there yet. And he wants to spur them on. So he sees that they, they lack elements essential in a good, God-glorifying Christian. Now the Corinthians didn't know that, of course. They thought they were it. Aren't they the great tongue speakers extraordinary? Don't they have the gifts of the Spirit in abundance, beyond measure? Don't they have the miracles like no other church has miracles? 
Are they the fearless and the faithful warriors for God? They thought that they could even judge who were the great preachers. They thought they could even tell who were the best apostles. They were so spiritual. They were so discerning with all the gifts of God. They could tell who were the best of the apostles. And they were judgmental. And especially of the apostle Paul, their spiritual father. They were judgmental of him. So they thought that they were great Christians who could carry out this judgmental attitude. And they're bickering among themselves and they're fighting among themselves. And while they seem to have all the gifts, they certainly lack Christ-likeness. So they don't see their own Christ-likeness. Oh, they're orthodox. They're sound. We might say they're Calvinistic. We might say they have all the doctrine, all the teaching. And everything else. But they just. They lack grace. In their lives. Paul sees it. It's clear that he wants to. Rebuke them for this. And to rectify it. And to endeavor to see that they become more like the Lord. So he's aware of this harshness. This coarseness. That is in them. And that is why he, he writes thus. You remember. This is the great chapter where he writes about love, Christian love. Chapter 13, that great chapter that we all love and know so well. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love. You see, he's he's saying you've got all the gifts, you've got all the eloquence, you've got all the tongues, but if you don't have love, it's just like battering a bit of brass. It's It's not a good thing at all. It's the lack of grace. And he has to say to them such things as he did in his later, later epistle. I beseech you, I, Paul, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So he's always bringing in this, this element of grace. This Christ-likeness that he wants to see more and more in this Corinthian church. Now if Paul urges imitation, we have to ask in what respect is he urging that? What does he want them to imitate in him when he says, be imitators of me? And that's where our text comes in, in verses 12 and 13. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, We entreat. There's a nice three-point sermon there, isn't it? We bless. We suffer it. We entreat. This is Christ-likeness. This is what Paul means when he says, Be imitators of me. This is Christianity at its best. This is Christianity that is thrown into the furnace of fire and it doesn't all burn up and all the works are consumed but there is still remaining glowing, shining, burning likeness to Jesus in the fire. This is it. This is what Paul is talking about. These are the best Christians. We bless. We suffer it. We entreat. That's a healthy saint. 
One in whom God's grace is abounding. One who has much of the fullness of the Spirit. Not tongue speaking is the sign of it. Not loudness is the sign of it. Not critical and judgmental orthodoxy is the indication of it. Here it is. This is what this spiritual father wants to see in his children. Now don't misunderstand me. Paul is not doubting that they are Christians. He's not doubting that at all. He's not questioning their genuineness. He treats them as brethren and sisters in the Lord. But he just desires that they may be more like the Savior. Now you will see that this godliness is not observed without trial and trouble. The furnace of fire, you see, brings out the degree of spirituality. We think we're doing well. We think we're very godly. We think we have attained on two great heights. And then someone crosses us. And we really see what we are. Egotistic. Fleshly. Selfish. More concerned about ourselves. It's suffering that brings that out. And that's why Paul says, being reviled, being persecuted, people railing us, people maliciously harming and hurting us, being defamed, being talked about, lied about, being talked about unjustly. It's whenever these things come to us. Uh, How do we respond? How do we react? So it's not just any kind of suffering, although ordinary suffering and trials too can bring out likeness to Christ, whether we have it or not, but especially persecution and opposition brings it out. We're talking about the opposition of the ungodly, of hurtful people in our lives. Now we've seen very fine Christians and they have looked fine and looked godly and holy and you wouldn't like to cross them. (laughs) You see another side of them. You wouldn't revile them because you, you would certainly know something about it if you did. We rise up in rage, brethren and sisters, don't we? We're all the same in these situations. We behave very unchristly. And it's by this means that the Lord shows us how far we are from being like the Lord. This is what Paul is is talking about. A good Christian will bless. A good Christian will suffer it. And a good Christian will entreat. In the face of the most wicked malice and opposition and persecution. How few respond like that, we all know. And it's not part of our Ulster culture to respond like that, is it? We're Ulster men and women, and we don't let anybody walk over us. And many of us have been of Scottish descent, and we belong to the Scottish clans way back in the distant past. And you know what they were like? They weren't wimps who suffered it. This is Christian culture. 
This isn't the flesh. And even in Paul's day, it was the same. It wasn't Corinthian culture either. They were wise. They knew better than others. Uh, they wouldn't let any man walk over them. They wouldn't suffer things, wouldn't suffer fools gladly. Corinthians were just like the rest of us. Now, when Paul talks about opposition, it was something he faced commonly. It wasn't imagined opposition. You know, some people say a few things behind our backs and we think that, oh, we're persecuted and we're reviled and we're maligned and we're defamed. That's not the same league. A few things behind your back. No, we're talking about intense hatred, intense persecution, opposition that causes pain and loss and sometimes death. And really, very few of us know anything about that. I mean, how many of us have really been reviled? How many of us has really been defamed in the sense that Paul means? You know, he's the offscoring of the earth. He is despised of men. The filth, we're, we're the filth in the world's eyes. That's the kind of opposition that he's, he's talking about. Whenever the people in those days said, away with these Christians, they're, they're not fit that they should live. That's the kind of opposition that, that they faced. And as they faced that, what, what did they do? We bless. We suffer it. We entreat. The order is very important, brethren and sisters. It's the right order. It's first, Godward. We bless. Because that's prayer. The second is inward. We suffer it. We endure it. We are patient through it. And the third is manward. Having got strength from God in prayer. Having the grace of endurance in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Then to the opposition you entreat. Entreat. So the order is right. It's a natural order. Uh, and it's a biblical order. The blessing is first. This is God word because it's prayer. You see, you can't bless. We don't just bless people. It means that we pray to God that God will bless them. So blessing is God word, first of all. It's looking to God. It's looking to the blessed one. So this is prayer to God. We must never forget, no matter how badly people treat us, that God is good. Don't ever take your eyes off that, you see. Don't forget the Lord is good. Don't let your passions be roused. Don't let your thoughts be uh, twisted and perverted by uh, the world's malice and wickedness. But look to God and see his goodness and his kindness and let that control your passions. And let that shape your thinking and your thoughts. Not, Not the wickedness of men. But the goodness of God. We ought to have our passions controlled by God. And whenever people are are reviling us and railing us up, we have to get to God and to remember his goodness. And to remember he is the blessed one who has given us blessedness even though we were such wretched sinners ourselves. And in this knowledge then, 
we have a spirit whereby we desire good to them who harm us. We bless them. But it isn't without prayer to God. God enables us to bless them. It's not just Godward. See, blessing is a special kind of prayer, isn't it? A blessing is a special kind of prayer whereby you come to God that he may be good to others. And in this case, those who wrong you. We, we bless those who revile us. So it's praying for God's grace in their lives. It's praying that the Lord will be merciful to them. That the Lord will open their blinded eyes. That they might have the blessing of grace and the blessing of salvation. We have to pray and desire their salvation. Even the worst of our enemies. Even the worst of our revilers. God wants us to come before them and to desire in our hearts their salvation. Because God hears our heart. Now we can say with our lips, Lord bless them, but in our heart we could be wishing them cursed. And God hears the heart, you know that. And God has ears to hear our hearts. And the Christ-like man is the one who can come before God and earnestly desire the salvation of the offenders and of the wicked. And not their hurt and not their damnation and judgment. So they revile the saint, they curse the saint, but saints don't do the same. The Lord Jesus didn't do that himself, and he doesn't give us the liberty to do that. The Bible says, bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Curse not. Out of the mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing, James said. My brethren, these things ought not to be. We're Christians. There's not out of our mouth coming cursing. We belong to Jesus. We've tasted the grace of God. The grace of God has entered into the fountain of our hearts. And there should be blessing proceeding out of it, not cursing. Both can't come out of the same place. Not rendering evil for evil, Peter says, or railing for railing. But contrywise, blessing. Knowing that there unto you have been called that you should inherit a blessing. You're just an unworthy sinner. And the Lord has given you the blessing of everlasting life. Can you not find the grace. To desire that those who offend you. May also have that blessing of everlasting life. This is God-likeness. This is Christ-likeness. This is what Paul saw lacking in this tongue-speaking church. So we bless. And then we have to endure. And our translators translated it so right. We suffer it. Our culture is, we won't suffer it. We'll not take that. There's no way. This isn't an option, brethren and sisters. We suffer it. We take it. We're not talking about in a long queue, you know, where you have to, you know, have patience in a long queue. Although that's a good practicing ground for this, what we're talking about. You begin to train there, or maybe you go to the dentist and, you know, your appointment, I'm 10 minutes past my appointment, what's the doctor doing? And then 20 minutes past the appointment and you're ready to walk out in a rage. We're not talking about that. 
Otherwise, I say that's good training ground for us. And the Lord puts us in there to begin with. But it's when opposition comes. And the malice and the hatred and the attack and the assault. We endure it. This is the opposite of the flesh. This is the opposite of Greek teaching. And I mean, the Greeks taught that, that he's a wimp who doesn't fight back. Who lets a man walk all over him. Who lets his coat be taken. And then gives him another one too, as our Lord taught us. Who lets his, his face be smitten. And then just turns the other cheek as well, as our Lord taught us, taught us also. That, that is contrary to Greek culture. Because it's contrary to the flesh. Contrary to our ego. To our pride. This taking it. This, this suffering it. This is when we see our measure of godliness and spirituality. And brethren and sisters, I have to say, we are usually disappointed when we're put in these situations. You know, this word brings us into the remembrance of Christ's sufferings, doesn't it? We suffer it. And we read so often in the Bible, he, he suffered for our sins. He suffered it. He endured it. He took it. He continued patiently under it and through it and didn't escape it or didn't do wrong to ease it or to avoid it. He took it. He suffered it. That was our Lord. And so you see, this is what brings out Christ-likeness. You know, it's easy to think, oh, we're Christ-like whenever we you know, we believe the authority of the Bible. We can say it is written. And we, we imitate Christ in that confidence of faith. But when someone comes to nail us to the cross, do we imitate Christ in the sufferings? This is where the, the Christ-likeness comes out. The Bible talks about the patience of the saints. The patience of the martyrs. You know, that's what overthrew the Roman Empire. That's what won multitudes and multitudes of pagans. This endurance of the saints, this patience in suffering that they manifested, this Christ-likeness. And many of them were crucified like Jesus. Many of those martyrs. And the blood of the saints became the, the seed of the church. So they suffered it. And then the saints are to entreat. We entreat. Is there to be no response to the persecutors? Do we just pray and Lord bless them, Lord save them, Lord open their eyes? And Do we just endure it and suffer it? No, there, there is a response. Not the response of Peter, take out his sword, cut off the ear. That's not the response. That's not entreating. <laughs> This is not violence. This is not reviling back. Being reviled, we revile back, we just do the same. This is not being nasty and graceless. This is entreaty by reasonable words. By words that have no passion. Just reason, just calm reason. Words that are spoken in a spirit of blessing, in a spirit of goodwill for those offenders that they may be rectified. 
words of patience and endurance. So it's speaking without passion, except one passion, to win them for Christ. That's the overriding passion in the Christ-like heart. To win them for Christ. So it's speaking without, without anger and rage and the way we get on whenever we're rattled. Persuading them. Persuading them of the injustice of this behavior. Persuading them of the, the cruelty of it. Persuading them of the love of God and Christ. And treating them with the gospel. And more interested in their salvation than in our vindication. Than our egos. Entreated by warning them. So th- this is Christ-likeness. And Paul realizes that these Corinthians are just not up to that mark. And maybe it's a good thing that they haven't known much persecution just yet. As he has in his life. Now why does all this matter? Why does Paul cure? What odds if the Christian behaves like the world? What odds if the Christian gets angry and fights back? And uh, What does it matter if you're a poor Christian? As long as you're a genuine one. Well that's the wrong attitude brethren and sisters isn't it? It does matter. Because while it's not a matter of our salvation, because we're saved by grace, it is a matter of God's glory. It's a matter of honoring God. It's a matter of honoring the gospel. It's a matter of being a good testimony. It's a matter about leaving the ungodly without excuse in their consciences in that day of judgment. It's all about that. That's why it's important. And it's important for our peace and our conscience whenever we're on our deathbeds too. These things matter. They do. Otherwise Paul wouldn't go on about it. They're important. These responses, these three reactions are found in Christ. They were in our Savior. They were in our head. They were rich in him because he was sinless. I I don't have the time to go through examples of, of this. But you know he was he, he was revived, but he didn't revile again. He, he was treated badly, and what did he ever do? He just blessed sinners. He just did them good. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do on the cross. And all of that, this is Christ described for us here. They're in the head, and they ought to be in the body. Because the body is not severed from the head, and we are the body of Christ, joined to the head, and, and therefore they ought to be in us to glorify our head. They are the evidence of healthy saints. They are the evidences of saints in whom the Spirit of God is working and moving. They are the evidences of the fullness of the Spirit, not speaking in tongues. This is the evidence. And they are commanded by our head as well. That's why they're important. He has said to us, love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you. This is why Paul does it, because his Savior commanded him to do this. 
It's not an excuse for him to say, that's too hard for me, Lord, I can't do that, I don't want to do that. No, he, he comes before God, it's difficult for him as it is for us all, but he comes before God and he gets the grace. And in, in the presence of the good God, it melts him so that he becomes this man. So bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. They're important because these things God wants to see in us when we come before us. Now, he's our heavenly father. He doesn't reject us and he doesn't send us to hell because we're not the children that he would like us to be at that particular moment. But he, he does be pleased when we endeavor after the likeness of his son. So he wants us to come before him with, with a blessing in our hearts, with generosity in our hearts, with large hearts. And if we are critical of people that we would have the grace to pray, well, the, the Lord will change them without talking it all over the world. But they get before the Lord and say, Lord, change them. Lord, melt them and make them so that I don't have to criticize them. This is what the Lord wants to see in us. This is Christ's likeness. And these things the Holy Spirit produces in his people, it's really part of the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? The, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, this, this endurance, this patience, this gentleness, this meekness, this kindness. This is just the Spirit of God operating in his people. So, so it is important. We shouldn't resist the Spirit. We shouldn't restrain the Spirit. We shouldn't quench the Spirit. But we should allow him to conform us onto the likeness of Jesus. And then, of course, it's important, brethren and sisters, because by this means we glorify God. Lastly, and by no means the least, it is by this means that God breaks down sinners and melts them. When the wicked see virtue, when they see Christ-likeness, when they see this love and gentleness and kindness, it gets a response. Now, it may make them worse, I know that. And their judgment all is more severe. But the Spirit of the Lord may use it to melt them and to accompany the word of the gospel and to bring them to himself. He, he certainly won't bring them to himself if Christians are going to be the opposite. It's important to win souls. I've heard of so many, the, the worst of sinners. I've heard of sodomites, Satan worshippers, and the thing that challenged them and brought them to the commencement of the change was a, a genuine kindness in Christians. They couldn't get over that. They couldn't deny that. And it has won them. And so, you see, that, that's why Paul is, is going on about this. I want you to be the kind of church that wins souls. May the Lord bless these few thoughts and these feeble words to our, our sanctification and to, to our help. I don't speak them as a perfect man. I don't speak them as Paul himself. I'm not speaking as one I've attained here myself. I struggle with these things too, brethren and sisters. So we're all the same, all right? But we have to hear the word, we have to hear the truth, 
And the Lord has to give us more of his spirit. So may he, he bless the word to us and give us the spirit who sanctifies us by that word and to that good and great God be all glory.